Welcome to another episode of Courtside Reveals, the tennis part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. As always, joined by my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink. We are also privileged to have with us the current tournament director of Indian Wells, Tommy Haas. Tommy has reached in his playing career the semifinals of the Australian Open three times and Wimbledon once. He reached the quarterfinal stage of each of the Grand Slam events. He's won 15 career titles and singles and has a silver medal from the 2000 Summer Olympics. And most recently joined the ownership group of the San Diego Stingrays, a pro Padel League franchise. Please welcome to the pod, Mr. Tommy Haas. Tommy, thank you so much. Hi, David. Hi, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. So, so let's let's talk current events right here. We're we're talking pro Padel, San Diego Stingrays. Give it, give us a background. How you got involved? How this all came up? How this all came about? Yeah, it all just happened uh, recently uh, when I was approached uh, by Ryan Redondo and his partner uh, Gabriel, who um, obviously are uh, part of the uh, franchise down in San Diego, the Stingrays. Um, you know, I just kind of picked up uh, a paddle myself, you know, over the time uh, during the pandemic a little bit. Uh, some of my friends are really into it. Um, they have turned some of their uh, tennis courts in Los Angeles into a padel court. So I have a sort of, uh, you know, a, a love-hate relationship about that personally. But uh, once you start to play paddle, um, you know, you kind of feel like, okay, this is something that I can probably want to get into pretty quickly. So I've been, I've been enjoying playing with lots of friends, uh, mainly in Los Angeles. Um, and when I was approached by them, asking if I wanted to be part of the franchise and sort of maybe compete in the future and be part of some exhibition matches and sort of, you know, help promote the sport a little bit. You know, we thought about it a little bit. I thought about it a little bit. And, uh, you know, I came to the conclusion that, you know, I really like it that much that, you know, number one, I want to play it every chance that I get pretty much, uh, which is, you know, doesn't allow me with my time at times. But um, it, it is that much fun. And I thought, you know, what an opportunity. You know, what, a, what kind of, a, you know, especially since I felt like it's getting really, really hot, especially in Europe, you know, you go to places like Spain or you hear about it in Sweden, uh, South America, you know, um, friends of mine that are playing it now in Germany, you know, Germany is always a little bit slow with these kinds of things. Um, and, you know, my dislike towards pickleball. So I felt like that is one of those sports that uh, games uh, that I really, really want to, you know, help promote. Well, uh, Steve, let me, I think I speak for Steve on behalf of this. I mean, you're just not some random guy who picks up another paddle. You have a reputation to uphold. I mean, you're a heck of a tennis player. I mean, you gotta be, you gotta be pretty good here. People eyes are going to be on you, Tommy. You ready? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's what it's all about too. Right. I mean, you know, you know, the tennis part is sort of, you know, gone by, you know, I've been retired now over about some six years or so. And, uh, you know, you always look for different challenges. Of course, I still love to compete playing on the Champions Series or Legends Tour, you know, when you get invited to all of those things, which are a lot of fun. And, you know, I've sort of inter inter implemented the fact that also we should continue playing where it actually counts and means something, you know, so it's not just like a hit and giggle all the time. So we put some prize money on the line as well. So, you know, the guys have to kind of, you know, prepare for that and, uh, and stay in shape, which is, you know, it's a good thing if you, you know, keep yourself motivated to try to stay in shape and stuff like that. But it's always nice to find a new challenge. Um, you know, I, I, I certainly... Also enjoy playing golf, but it just takes so much time away from, uh, from you know, the day and, and family. And, you know, it's, you know, when you travel, it's not always easy to travel with everything, etc. Um, so paddle is, is sort of one of those things that I'm very intrigued by. It challenges me. It makes me want to learn, you know, new moves. You know, it's kind of like between squash and tennis where the ball can come off the wall, you know, all kinds of different angles. And you still have to move uh, pretty well. And, uh, you know, the only thing is you do need a partner, right? It's two against two only in paddle as of now. 
Um, so you got to try to find the right partner in order to, to sort of be in sync and, uh, and understand each other, which, you know, is one thing I, I didn't really do that much on the tennis tour. So that's something new for me. But again, you know, uh, as you get older in life and you look to what you want to do and what, what are the things that are going to be fun for you, sort of like on a competitive level and a social level with people, friends, meeting new people, uh, paddle is, is right up there with one of the best things I've ever done. So, um, you know. I, I do need to practice more. I do need to play more. That's for sure. Um, and uh, and as this progresses, hopefully, and as it becomes bigger here in the U.S., um, I certainly will also try to do that. So that's uh, that's a good challenge. Well, we'll be watching. We'll we'll be watching for sure, Tommy. And and you know, we are just a couple months. I mean, it's pretty short. We're just two months past basically um, another extremely successful event down in Indian Wells. Um, Carlos Alcaraz won. I, I, I think I looked back. He, he didn't drop a set the whole tournament. He beats Anil Medvedev, Medvedev 6-3-6-2. Rabakina beats Sabalenka. You're seeing a nice rivalry there in the final. Um, another great event. We're definitely going to talk about your career. But first, I think Steve and I want to, want to dive into a little bit about um, how you became tournament director of the event. We're seeing a lot of former players um, become tournament directors and sure back-to-back events for the Indian Wells in Miami. You got James Blake, the tournament director down in Miami. Talk a little bit about how you uh, got into that role. Yeah, you know, uh, what's really interesting, obviously, is is that, you know, once you sort of understand that you are getting, um, you know, towards the end of your career, which, you know, I, I thought maybe on three different occasions that that was going to be the case, you know, with uh, unfortunately due to my injuries, you know, I thought maybe after my hip surgery, maybe, maybe even before my, 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 my third uh, you know, shoulder surgery, I was like, oh, okay, well, I don't know how this is going to, you know, play out with the shoulder. But then once things got better, same with the hip at 32, 33, I became a dad. I still wanted to prolong my career and always had in my mind that I would love to play in front of my daughter. So she realizes like, okay, this is what my dad did. And, you know, I was still there and we have some, you know, footage and pictures and something to share for, you know, such a big part of my life, obviously, which always will be. So once you kind of in that situation where you kind of know, like, okay, I'm heading towards 40, you know, I'm getting sort of injuries again. I know that this is going to be pretty much the end. My ranking is dropping. I'm not going to go play challengers and uh, and try to get my ranking back up inside the top 100, top 50. So, you know, having a good relationship to, to Mr. Larry Ellison, who I met through my father-in-law, David Foster, the great music producer. You know, we've kept in touch. You know, um, he's, a, he's a big fan of the game of tennis. Um, you know, he, he obviously purchased and took over Indian Wells many, many years ago. And I had the privilege to stay at his compound uh, in, in Rancho Mirage uh, during the time I was still a player playing there. And so we've always talked about tennis. We've always talked about ideas. I've always given my input of what I would change, what I would do, sort of with the tour, all with tournaments, et cetera, et cetera. And when the opportunity came, uh, you know, about to, to become tournament director at Indian Wells, you know, I just kind of threw my name out there, not really knowing if it's something that I really want to actually do or not. But, you know, the, the truth of the matter is we're talking about Indian Wells, an amazing tennis facility that is there all year round. We're talking of one of the most wanted uh, events that everybody wants to come to, if you're not only a fan, but obviously the players, even sponsors love it. So I've always known that this is something I do want to be a part of. And, you know, I know that the bar was already raised so very high when I, you know, started my first year in 2017 as tournament director there uh, with new things that were happening, obviously building Stadium 2 with, you know, the, the sort of like the restaurants around it, which is sort of like something new that we haven't seen in tennis before. Um, and, um, you know, I just like, again, those challenges to try to keep, uh, keep improving the facility, keep making it better for the, for the tennis players in itself, which is obviously very important because that's ultimately why we are coming to watch them play. Right. And, uh, and making it, you know, such a great fan base for, for the fans, you know, where they, you know, if you're walking around the facility, if you're watching tennis on stadium one or on the outside courts, 
you want to have a little bit of an area where you want to, you know, cool off a little bit so that everything sort of speaks for the event. And, uh, you know, the entire team there in New Wells uh, have done a great job. And, you know, we keep raising the bar, I feel like, every year. And tournaments are stepping up all around the world now as well. You know, obviously, take out the Grand Slams. They've always been sort of, you know, a standout. But all the other Master Series 1000, now you see Madrid and you see Rome also being a, a two-week event as well. Uh, Cincinnati catching up. I know there's some talks about maybe them, you know, moving the tournament somewhere else as well. So there's a lot of things going on in the tennis world. And that's that's always, uh, you know, that's great for the sport. And uh, and that's ultimately how I got into it. And um, yeah, I'm loving every second of it. I really enjoy it. And always my goal is, uh, like I said, to, to make it better. Tommy, did you feel like you had a sort of a built-in advantage, though, at the start, given that you... Uh, it's my uh, my feeling has always been you're very popular among your fellow players. They respected your game. They respected you as a human being. They thought you were bright and very capable. What was that not kind of a did that not help you at the outset to give you confidence that the players would believed in you and that you could turn to them and that the whole thing could work? Yeah, you certainly hope so, right? I mean, you try to stay in touch with them as many times as you can. You know, you see them at other events. You know, uh, luckily, I've had a decent career where you're invited to these Legends tournaments as well, where, you know, you play the second week in Australian Open, French Open, Wimbledon. So it's always nice to have that face wash. You know, I'm still obviously very friendly to a lot. You know, playing with Danielle Collins today here at the IMG Sports Academy. So, you know, I still try to, you know, play because I love the game and, and sort of be in the in and outs and, uh, and ask questions, you know, ultimately and, and see what, what there really is that we can do better. And, you know, of course, it helps mainly to have, uh, you know, to have an owner like Larry Ellison that has the capability of, uh, of, of making things happen if, if he's up for it. Right. So that's that's really the key. You know, there's again, I see a lot of things that I think we can still improve in. Um, but these are not small things. You know, these are ultimately big things that will cost uh, quite some money. And, you know, uh, he's, he's invested a lot of money in the past already into the event and, um, you know, has made great adjustments and, and upgrades, you know, again, I don't know many tournaments or any sporting events where you can say, okay, you know what, I'm, I'm getting hungry. Let's, uh, let's have some great Nobu sushi, right? With, uh, with just an unbelievable experience, right? Even at, at Stadium 2 now, you know, you go to Nobu and you have an amazing meal. If, if that's something that you don't want to do, if it's not in your budget, even the concession stands, they're all very good. If you want to have a good hot dog, you know, it's high end. It's, it's, it's just that feeling of like, wow, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, a lot of people that are coming to the event, they feel like they're being treated right. And, uh, and, and that's, and that's ultimately what's amazing and what's important to us. And, you know, getting the feedback from the players is obviously, uh, you know, a very, very big part of it. Um, and, uh, yeah, like I said, it's, uh, it's been a fun ride. I, I want to continue to, um, you know, keep, keep improving it and, uh, and showing everyone that, that we care to making it, uh, you know, an amazing experience for everyone involved. Oh, I mean, there's a reason they call it the fifth slam. Everybody loves it. The players and the spectators. I know, Steve, you've been down, you've been going there for a long time and uh, you have such high regards for that event. Everyone does. It's a beautiful event. Um, we we talk a, a, a ton about your career, Tom. You had a great career. Unfortunately, like you referred to earlier, there were, in, there were you know, quite a bit of injuries, but your resiliency was unbelievable that you kept coming back. Um, we mentioned some of the highlights. I do want uh, to, I'm going to let Steve kind of talk a little bit about your career, um, maybe ask a few questions about maybe a specific match or two. And then I also want to talk about, uh, I want to ask you once Steve is done about the influence that um, the legend Nick Boletari had on your tennis career. Absolutely. Steve, go ahead with anything you got with, uh, with Tommy and his uh, a match or two or anything specific. Yeah, Tommy, what strikes me looking back on your career 
is the longevity. You mentioned injuries. I understand that injuries, interruptions, but boy, I mean, I remember you're playing Pete Sampras in the summer of 96 in Indianapolis. You're 18 years old. You're already becoming a factor. And then you establish a nice rivalry with him over the years with Andre Agassi. But then you came, went on to the next generation of the big three of Federer, Djokovic, Nadal. And it seemed to me that, you, you know, you, it, it's hard to even say what your peak was. But let's, let's talk a little bit about 2002. You got to two in the world. And I think to me, I want to know if you agree that was your best chance to win a major. You got to the semis of the Australian, and you're up two sets to one against Safin. And Safin came back and beat you. You would have played Thomas Johansson in the final. Might well have been your title. What happened in that match? Because I thought you were playing really well, and then Safin turned it around those last two sets. Uh, it, it seemed like a, a real opening for you. I, had a, I remember thinking at the time, Tommy's, Tommy's probably going to win this tournament. Yeah, it's uh, definitely one of those matches that I probably look back uh, thinking to myself that that was one that probably got away uh, and potentially, you know, that one slam that I maybe, you know, could have won. Um, you know, I was up two sets to one. I had a great uh, Australian Open up until that point, I think, beating Roger in the fourth round and, you know, Tom yeah. Martin in five sets and then Rios, I think, in four sets, tough sets to to get to the to the semis and, um, you know, up two sets to one against, uh, against Marat. And we've played a couple of times before and I think I had the upper hand uh, up until that point against him. And, um, you know, the rain came, you know, I think uh, fourth, uh, fourth set, uh, I think the first game or second game, I think the rain came down. I don't know yeah. exactly what happened, but and, you know, the roof at that time closed uh, quite slowly and, you know, the court was a little bit wet. So we had about, I think, a, a 40, 45 minute break uh, until we got back out on the court. And it was really the first time, maybe the second time, but the first time at a Grand Slam at such a big stage that, you know, I was interrupted during a match uh, of that magnitude and um, I wasn't quite sure what to do. And I probably made a mistake for going back to the locker room and lying back on the massage table and stretching out instead of kind of keeping moving. And I remember, I think Marat was, you know, he just kind of got off the court and he stayed there and just kind of kept moving, started, you know, kept running around because when I got back out of the locker room, he was still there kind of doing the same thing. And, um, you know, I might have actually, because of that, sort of lost a little bit of a step at the beginning of the fourth set. And, uh, and he came out swinging. He came out firing, not missing much. And, uh, and that, slip, uh, that set slipped away really, really quickly. And then in the beginning of the fifth, he had sort of the momentum. And we all know when Marat was feeling well and he was hitting the, the spots with his serve and the ground strokes, you know, he just kind of became a better player. And, and I never really found that level again. And then it, everything just so, sort of went really, really fast, unfortunately. And that was, that was a big bummer. That was a big setback. And to be honest with you guys, too, you know, during that tournament, I already started feeling my shoulder that something was not right. That was the beginning of 2002. And so for the entire rest of that year, you know, every now and then, uh, every now a couple of weeks, I kept feeling some really sharp, weird pain in my shoulder. At times, I couldn't even lift my arm. I couldn't even shake people's hands. And I was going, this is crazy. And then at times, it would completely disappear again. And I kept playing, you know, pretty solid, pretty, you know, I was playing just very uh, consistent tennis. I wasn't losing many matches to players, you know, outside the top 10. And, uh, and then I got to the finals in Rome. Uh, got a pretty nice beating there from Andre. You know, these are the days when, uh, you know, all these uh, uh, Master Series were still best of five. And, you know, after he won the first two sets, you know, with my mental weaknesses at times, I was already kind of like, okay, I'm not coming back from this. So, um, you know, but it was still, I got to number two in the world at that point, playing consistent tennis because I had a great end of 2001, you know, winning in Stuttgart, a Masters Series 1000, only to find out after that event that uh, Tyriak is moving that tournament to Madrid, which is for a German player growing up in Germany. You know, that was like another one of those hits where you kind of go, wait, I just won the tournament that I've always wanted to win indoors, which I love to play in. 
in in Germany in 2001, and now I'm I'm, I'm hearing that I, I cannot even defend my title there the following year, yeah. uh, which was tough. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's been a crazy sort of you know a career in many ways. You know, with uh, with some expectations, um, I had a very quick start getting into the top hundred. As you mentioned, my first I think wild card into an ATP event was in Indianapolis in '96 when I was 18 when I turned pro. And I got to play, you know, Pete Sampras, who also trained a little bit at the academy when I got there when I was 13 years old, right, like in 1991. And uh, and so, you know, be playing him and then on, on center court was obviously like a little dream come true. And, you know, it was just typical Pete Sampras match, you know, one break each set and then serves <laughs> you off the court. So that was that was great. Shortly after that, you know, I qualified for my first Grand Slam to play Michael Stieg, who obviously another German legend in the game, Wimbledon champion. So I was very pumped and excited to play that match. Um, and, you know, did, did pretty good overall, lost 7-5 uh, in the fourth. And so the, the, the career kind of went in the, to the right direction. Took me a little bit to kind of, you know, find out exactly my kind of uh, game style and, you know, the mental toughness and, you know, the grind, you know, day in and day out and, you know, accepting losses, accepting, you know, wins and trying to get better and better. And so in 99, I reached, uh, you know, the top 10 for the first time, which was obviously always a goal. And... Um, you know, and there's a lot of noises, as you know, you guys been around tennis enough, you know, there's a lot of noises uh, that go on behind the scenes all the time, right? If it's, uh, you know, parents, if it's uh, family, if it's your agent, if it's other coaches, you know, obviously with Nick Ball, Terry, things were always a little bit crazy and different because, you know, he had so many players that wanted him to be to be there and coach him, etc. So you always had to try to find your time. Obviously, I was lucky enough that I was one of his favorites and that he would always take time for me. But I had a traveling coach, obviously, with David read Amy at the time. And so there was always noises and people saying you should try this, maybe try another coach, go that way. And so at some point you do, and then you realize that's not really a good fit for me. That doesn't work. I don't think he has enough energy for me, you know? So it really, you have to try to find out, you know, what works for yourself as well. You know, what type uh, of... Uh... Sorry to interrupt, Tommy. I just oh, wanted please. to to, uh, to touch on a couple of, of nice highlights. Beating Agassi at Wimbledon in 98. Start... A brief account of that. That was a nice moment. He'd won the tournament in 92. He was a better player on grass than many people realized. Uh, how, how did that feel at the time to topple Agassi on the lawns of Wimbledon? Yeah, another one of those situations. Obviously, you know, when I first got to the academy, you know, Nick and Andre were still very tight and I got many chances to play with Andre. I got to go to a couple of tournaments with him when I was like, you know, 15, 16 years old. So, Andre to me was always one of my idols as well. You know, one of those guys that I that I looked up to and uh, you know loved his game. Still, still to this day, I think he's one of the best strikers we ever had in the game. And so, you know, when I actually played him the uh, first couple of times, you know, at the age of you know 19, 20, you know, there was one beating in between there that he gave me in Scottsdale, I remember. And you know, so then when you kind of you know go to center court Wimbledon first time for me to play Andre, and I remember when he won it in '92 against Ivanišević, you know, you were so pumped for him to to win that match and. I got all the pictures and, you know, Nick's signature and Andre's signature, which I think Nick signed back in the day to get, you know, to have the pictures with them holding Wimbledon trophy. And then just, you know, a quick six years later, you know, me walking out there on center court playing, you know, literally one of my idols was like, wow, you know, I'm, I was in awe. I was very nervous and kind of like saying to myself, I finally arrived where I want to be as well. So, you know, I know he didn't play his best match and uh, it was also a little crazy because I think there was one bad line call in the third set that gave me a, you know, a big chance to go up two sets to one, which I did. And then it was getting late at night. So we had to come back the next day. And I heard that he flew in rackets, you know, for the next day, for the next match to go play with a different racket. So lots of things, lots of drama going on. And 
you know, again, my, my problem was is that I was always uh, more the player that wanted to play on center court. I wanted to play on the big stage. That was my sort of, you know, great thing, but also a bad thing because, you know, the next following match, the fourth round, I was supposed to play on, on the old graveyard against John Malottum. And I was hoping that I was going to be like at least a smaller stadium because, you know, going on on center court Wimbledon for one match and then going back to court five for your next match, it's like, for me, it was like, I'm playing a different tournament right now. This has nothing to do with Wimbledon anymore. It's like, this is, this is ridiculous, in my opinion. And everybody would always say, well, just win this one and the next one, and then you get back to center court. And I said, yeah, I understand that. But <laughs> the mental side of me going to that place of like literally playing, you know, and I love Wimbledon and I, you know, <laughs> the, the most respect for this event. But, you know, when you are playing on court five, six, and seven, when people are walking by on the sides and you see the big stadiums around you, it's not the same feeling, you know, it's fun to hit some balls and kind of, you know, warm up and stuff like that. It's great. But coming from center court to go back on that court to play a real match, it's very, very hard to do, uh, especially when you have that mental side that I have, uh, which, you know, a lot of people maybe don't care. But, you know, everyone's different that way. But still, it was a great, great match. I was happy to win it. Obviously, we'll always remember that one. And um, yeah, great times. Tommy, in 2009, same venue, Wimbledon, you beat Novak Djokovic, lost to Roger in the semis. Talk about beating the young Novak, beat him a couple of times on the grass that year. Uh, How special was that? He already had emerged in 07 and 08. He'd done some great things, and he was was three in the world behind Roger and Rafa. So what about beating Novak? And then playing a very good match against Roger in the semis, 6-5 and 3, was pretty tight. Yeah, you know, I always felt like I had a really good game for grass uh, with my, you know, with my all-round game. I had a good slice. I could come into the net and volley. And, you know, I always felt like if I, if I get going and, um, and, and feel confident and um, feeling physically fit, you know, I would be tough to beat. And, uh, you know, back in the day, we only, I only played two grass court tournaments all the time. It was Halle, you know, sort of like as a warm-up, and then it was Wimbledon. So depending on your draws, depending on your injuries, you know, a lot of times I couldn't play because I wasn't even ready to play. You know, I think one year also I got to the fourth round. I beat, uh, you know, Tursunov in the third, but then I ruptured, uh, you know, a, a muscle in my in my lower abdominal. I couldn't even play Roger in the fourth round. So I felt like there has got to be one sort of moment in Wimbledon where the stars align. And it was for me then in 2009. I was, you know, I won Halle uh, a couple of weeks, I think, prior to that, where I actually beat Djokovic also in the finals there. And I was feeling good. And then, you know, you're seated and, you know, things are going well. And I felt like, you know, there's really only one player that can probably beat me that year. And, you know, again, of course, it happened to be Roger Federer, who had just lost a tough match to in the fourth round at the French Open, where I actually was up two sets to, uh, to zero. And I had that break point at 3-4, where I felt like, oh, my God, if I win this game or this point, I'm going to win this match. And he comes up with a great shot. And then it's sort of like, you know, the next five minutes were very crucial. And he's finding his game. And, you know, he's starting to fist pump himself. And, you know, everything turned sort of like, uh, you know, as we always seen, you know, for, for Roger's way. But I felt like I was I was right there. And uh, even in the semis, you know, against Roger, you know, I only got broken at 5-6 uh, for the first time in the second set, right? So 6-7, 5-6, I'm holding serve. I have some opportunities. But I never really, I, even when I was looking back or even when I felt like I was on that court, I always felt like I never really did have a chance in that particular match in uh, Wimbledon semis in 2009. And that was always frustrating because I always felt like I had a good matchup against Roger. Um, but that particular day, you know, he did everything, you know, a few percent better than I did, I think, at my height of my game. Moved a little bit better, a little bit better first serve. You know, forehand was more accurate and had more more stuff on it. Maybe my backhand and uh, both of our highs, I would maybe say my backhand was maybe a little bit better, selfishly. But, you know, so, 
you know, lost that match and, you know, was kind of hoping like, well, why, why couldn't it have been at least the final for once, right? Like always, <laughs> sometimes you, you reach, you play in fourth round, you play in, you know, quarters, you play in semis. Like when I had the chance to, you know, once maybe get to that, you know, that finals of a slam. So, you know, it is where it is. You can always cry about it at the end of the day. It's not going to change anything. But, um, you know, still, still a great accomplishment uh, for me in, in my eyes. And, uh, yeah, just came up short again, unfortunately. What were the keys, though, to the two wins over Novak? You didn't say much about those, but that, that was impressive to beat them back-to-back on the graphs. Yeah, you know, I think in Halle, uh, in the finals, uh, from what my understanding was, I think, you know, there's always a great fun uh, uh, event uh, after the semis that evening in Halle where, you know, Gary Weber has a, is, a, is a fashion line or used to be, I don't know if they are still. Um, they always had, like, a, a little bit of a show, a concert going on that night. And the two, two finalists would always have a little you know, speech they have to give, a little Q&A on stage. And from my understanding, I heard that Novak was out uh, up until about maybe 3 or 3.30 in the morning, <laughs> knowing that he has to play a final the next day. And maybe maybe that I took that a little bit to my advantage. And, um, you know, and again, I was playing some really good tennis and, you know, the grass courts in Halle are also a little bit different. You would get away with like, you know, some, you know, stabbing volleys that are not great and some bad bounces here and there. And so the movement sometimes, you know, you couldn't really do much with that all the time because sometimes it's just like, okay, typical kind of like grass court tennis in the old days. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I was obviously feeling confident. And I think that helped me, though, when I played him in the quarters in Wimbledon because I felt like, okay, I just beat him. If I can kind of have that same mentality, that same sort of, you know, attacking mode tennis. I think I served in volley pretty much all first and second serves uh, during that year because it was still, you know, I felt like the balls were maybe a little bit quicker than they are nowadays. Um, and that was, that was my, <clears throat> my mentality going into that match uh, with my coach Thomas Hawkshire at the time. And, uh, and it worked out well. And I kind of got under his skin a little bit of, you know, you know jumping on top of him, playing aggressive, <clears throat> you know, chipping, charging a little bit. And uh, that was a good strategy. Tommy, one more Roger moment I want you to talk about that amazed me at the time was when you beat him in 2017 on the grass in Stuttgart. And you're 39 years old. I mean, and you lost the first set 6-2 and squeaked out a 10-8 tiebreaker and beat him 6-4 in the third. How satisfying was that? Because Roger had won the Australian at the start of that year, and he and he was about to win Wimbledon again, his last Wimbledon uh, in, in 2000. Yeah, that was in, like you said, 2017, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, obviously incredible uh, because, you know, we have a great picture of him holding up the trophy in 2017 in Indian Wells. That was my first year as tournament director. I wasn't allowed to play because of the ATP rule, uh, which I obviously still wanted to play Indian Wells. And then Larry Ellison actually stepped in and says, listen, I want you to play as well. You know, we'll figure it out. And I said, no, you know what? I'm going to do this job right because I respect the game and, you know, it's fine. Um, but then, uh, you know, Roger didn't play any of the clay court events. So it was his first match back after about a two and a half month break. And um, I sneaked out a good match against uh, Pierre Herbert, I believe, a tight one. And, you know, obviously, again, looked at the draw and I was like, OK, well, it's not the best draw in the world. But getting to play Roger in Germany in front of my family on grass. My daughter was there at the time. I think she was uh, six, six years old. Um, and I was just like, you know, let's just go out there and have fun and just enjoy the moment. This was sort of like my goodbye tour, especially in the German events. I was going to play, you know, Halle after that and then Hamburg, Germany and Kitzbühel, you know, obviously as well, German speaking uh, country. So that was the goal. That was the mindset. <clears throat> and I remember vaguely that I was down, like you said, 6-2, maybe 2-1. I don't know if I was down a break already in the second set, but it was 2-1. And I look over to the, to the clock. Um, to see, and I, I think I think we've played about 26, 27 minutes up until that time. And I'm just kind of talking to myself like I always did. And I was like, God, come on, let's at least try to get to an hour. 
right? Because anything <laughs> under an hour is like a, it's like a, a lesson. It's a beat down, right? And I'm just thinking, this is embarrassing in some ways. Come on, just try to hang in there. Try to hang in there. And I think I saved a break point maybe at four all and then maybe even a match point at four five or something like this. And I was like, okay, I'm hanging in there. Somehow sneak out the tie break and I'm sitting back down and I'm looking at the clock and it says like an hour and 25 minutes. I'm like, well, this is great. Life couldn't be better out here enjoying myself, full house, you know, people having a good time. We're playing some good tennis. And now I'm thinking to myself, okay, let's just hang in there and see what happens. And then I go up a break, I think three, two in the third. And I'm going, wow, I have a chance to actually win this match. I'm serving pretty good. So this is pretty impressive. And then on the flip side of that coin, I can feel my lower back tightening up during that match. So I'm so happy. I'm so relaxed. I'm just loving it. And on the other side, my devil on the other side is telling me, I can't believe that I'm having issues again with my back at this moment that I'm trying to enjoy so much because I feel like that this is one of those injuries again that's going to drag along for a couple of days or weeks. I win the match, of course. Amazing things. As I'm walking to the net and shaking his hand and the umpire's hand, I'm thinking to myself, maybe it's just time to take the uh, microphone and say, that's it. You know, I can't really top it, right? I mean, beating Roger on grass in Germany, my daughter's here, my family's here. This is as good as it gets. Like, I'm, I'm good because I already know my back is so bad that I don't think I can play the next match the way I even want to. I might as well just be done. Of course, I didn't do it because of the obligation of playing Halle, playing Hamburg. I wanted to play them. And then, you know, the instinct comes back and says, oh, maybe I can still move around good enough to somehow play. Literally couldn't move the next day. I almost, almost told the tournament director, look, I can't play on Friday. Tried everything I could. Wasn't even anywhere close of being able to serve and volley the way I needed to or move. And I lost. And so, you know, again, such a tennis high to then 48 hours later to have such a tennis low. And I was just like, oh, you know what? This is a good sign that this is over because I can't take it anymore with these ups and downs, with these injuries coming in my way of playing my best tennis. Because after I beat Roger, I, was, I would have thought, hey, this is a good chance to actually win the title now. You know, that, was the, that would have been, you know, the goal at least. You know, it's like, let's go. Um, so, but still, you know, it's, it's always something good to have, uh, you know, Roger and I are pretty friendly, so it's, it's good to say, hey, the last match, when it counted, at least I won that one because, you know, he took many, many others uh, away from me. So that's okay. <laughs> you, had, yeah. you, know, you got four wins over him, Tommy, and you beat Pete three times, you beat Andre four times, you beat Novak, I believe, three times, the two on grass and one more. What, was Rafa the, the most confounding for you? Was he the toughest? In some, I know mean, you didn't get as many cracks at him, but what, what, why was yeah, he so yeah, I played him three times. And, I, you know, actually looking back in Cincinnati, which wasn't one of his best tournaments, I probably had some good chances. I think I played him twice there, <clears throat> excuse me, and both times I had set points in the first set. And they didn't go my way. And then, you know, you know those high points up against my backhand with my shoulder. And, you know, it was always like running around it, trying to crunch my forehand. And I always felt like there too. I just didn't have enough firepower at the time anymore um, to sort of really hurt him in many ways. And it became clear to me when I played him in 2009, I think it was the third round in the Australian Open. And I was playing actually really good tennis and the first set and a half, two sets were pretty competitive, especially for my understanding how I played. And I lost 4-6, 4-6. But there were a few points <clears throat> that I played and I was just like, wow, I, I won that point like two or three times over and then I still lost it. And I was like, this is, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, just the movement and the shots he would hit and the lefty and the high spin up against my backhand. It was just not a, not a great sort of... Uh, you know, match up for me against him. So I'm always happy that I never actually had to play him at the French Open on, on clay because that would have just been a complete nightmare. Yeah. 
You and a lot of other players would feel the yeah, same yeah, exactly. A lot of people would, would agree with that. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, hey, you've been very generous with your time, and I know you got some plans in a little bit. Um, before we end, I, I know Nick Bollettieri, the, the tennis world lost a legend, right? Nick Bollettieri. And Nick had an effect on so many tennis players, um, so many people within the tennis industry itself, not just the players that he coached. Talk a little bit about um, the effect that he had on you and the effect that he had on your career. Yeah, it's funny that we're having this conversation. You know, I played for the first time three days ago at the uh, academy without Nick being there anymore. First time. So it was a little eerie. It was a little weird. You know, there's a statue there of him that they've done a good job with. And, you know, you look at it and you just kind of know, wow, man, you know, I, there's no phone calls anymore. I won't see him. And he had such a huge impact, of course, uh, in my career, in my life. And uh, such, a, you know, so many fun, incredible, you know, crazy moments as well. So I'll be forever grateful for the, for the times, you know, he'll live in, in the memories, uh, you know, forever. And, you know, of course, again, you know, so many, so many stories. Um, Voluntary Tennis Academy, as I know it, when I first got there, was obviously very different. Such a competitive playground, you know, all the players from all around the world and, and great coaches and, you know, really special, really small. I always kind of want to look at it that way in many ways but then you look at it what it is today you know the IMG Sports Academy and all the opportunities that you have there and the, the facility is phenomenal you know you kind of also look back and you go god can you imagine if we would have had a facility like this in the early 90s you know all of the you know gyms and locker rooms and you know recovery centers and you know the check-ins the restaurants it's just it's just a whole nother level now other sports as well that you could have played on the side right I'm already telling them to maybe put up some paddle courts as well for next time um, but uh, yeah, just just incredible memories, incredible time. I was really happy that I got to spend some time with him uh, towards the end of his life and had a few great moments, uh, which were very important to me. And uh, I have so many friends and, you know, so some of my closest friends that they were there from the beginning uh, with me also at, at Boletary Academy. And, uh, you know, we always have a few chats about him here and there, which is great. So, um, yeah, what a what a what a vision he had, you know, first first one to, to build an academy and now you have so many all around the world and, uh, you know, IMG Sports Academy recently just got sold to a hedge fund uh, company, right, for a decent price. So it's a pretty amazing what, he, what he's accomplished. Steve, you know, then they talk about Nick, Steve. They, <laughs> everyone we talk to and everyone, you know, in the tennis world, they say it. It's the stories, right? So many stories with Nick. Um, such a legend. And again, it's such a, a, a huge effect um, on the players that he coached and in the tennis industry as a whole. Steve, before we let Tommy go, any, uh, any final thoughts? No, just just Tommy. You can you imagine a figure like Nick ever emerging again in the game of tennis? Because I mean, his he just had that insatiable appetite, endless energy. If he said he slept four hours a night, I wouldn't believe him. I would say it was two, and yet and yet it, it, he just threw himself into life every single day. And then the cavalcade of players that he coached. Can you imagine ever again somebody having that deep an impact in the coaching industry? Um, not really. I mean, not to say that there aren't many coaches out there or, or people that are, you know, tennis fanatics and they would like to try to go in sort of a direction like that. I always want to say, you know, Nick, Nick was one of a kind and we'll never see anybody like him. I can, I think a lot of people would agree with that, you know, with his sunglasses, uh, you know, the, the color that he had. I mean, there's so many iconic things that, that he was all about. And, you know, sort of like a trailblazer in many ways. Um, you know, if you, if you want to compare someone a little bit to him, I think these days, Maybe you could say Patrick Maratuglu is sort of like the new sort of Nick Boateri in some ways, you know, that has yeah. a lot of passion for the game, that has built this amazing academy himself in the south of France and, you know, welcomes everybody that, uh, you know, wants to 
pursue their dreams and um, you know in that way maybe he's a modern Nick Volterra in some ways and I think you know Patrick will probably speak very very highly of Nick and probably looked up to him in many ways as well and maybe looked at a few things that he did and uh, you know tried to sort of implement them into his life and um, you know try to also maybe you know in, in, in his memory do the best that he can you know in, in the coaching world so um, you know I think he would probably be the closest thing to him right now. Well, Tommy, thank you again for your time. I'm looking behind you. I'm looking to see if I can get Roger Federer. There's a Grigor Dimitrov, maybe even a Novak. I'm not seeing them because <laughs> the Padel thing doesn't work out. If the Padel thing doesn't work out, we know there's some musical talent. You mentioned your father-in-law. We've seen the footage. We've seen the footage of you. Steve and I are not going to put you on the spot and do this. But the Chicago cover of Hard for Me to Say I'm Sorry is absolutely fantastic. You're lucky Steve and I are nice people because we're not going to make you do this on your own for another rendition of it. And, and I'm not allowed. It's not in the contract. I can only sing those you know, words with Grigo and Roger. And, you know, we're trying to extend the, uh, the one-handed back and boys. You know, there are, still a, there, are, there are still a few around. So we are working on that. It's actually funny because, you know, the next Labor Cup is in Vancouver, uh, Canada. And my, my father-in-law, David Foster, is actually in charge of the music. And they're doing like a charity event before it starts. So... I know Roger will be there. I will be there. Maybe Grigor, if he has a good year, makes the team for the Labor Cup. Maybe, uh, you know, another one-handed backhand player like the name of Pass who might join us. So maybe there is a chance of, of creating something again. But we should probably have a, we should probably ask the fans and see, you know, have a survey going out if they really want that or not. Well, the, for those that haven't seen it, go check it out on YouTube. The four of them were amazing. So I say yeah. part two, let's get it done in Vancouver if we can. Tommy All Harris, right. thank you so, so much for... Uh, sharing some time tonight and, and good luck with your new venture thank you so much good to see you guys and same here tommy best of luck to you